Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Where does Santa Claus come from? If you were to describe Santa Claus to somebody from a non-Western country, and I have done this, I am speaking from experience here, they would look at you and think that the whole custom and idea was truly bizarre. After all, one of our most beloved cultural figures is a guy who flies around in an airborne sleigh pulled by a bunch of reindeer, and every year on Christmas Eve, or very early Christmas morning, I guess, depending on his schedule, he breaks into people's houses. And instead of using the home invasion as an excuse to steal stuff, he does the opposite of that and gives everybody nicely wrapped gifts that he puts under a tree or in stockings that are hung up near the fireplace. How does he do this? Well, he goes through chimneys, of course. I mean, duh, what's he going to do? Use the door? Also, this guy may or may not be a saint, which is also confusing, given that you normally have to be dead to be a saint. But there's an exception for Santa Claus. Why? Because Santa Claus, that's why. So, last episode we talked about his namesake, Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas was one of the most popular saints in the early church. And, as I mentioned last episode, we don't know a lot about him until we get a long-form biography of the guy in the 800s. But even though Michael the Archimandrite's biography is the first long-form, you know, narrative thing we have about St. Nicholas, we do know that even before that, he was important. People were venerating him. People were mentioning him in passing as a saint that they were just really into. There were multiple places that claimed to have his relics, and there is writing that we know of that did exist before Michael the Archimandrite's narrative, but didn't survive into the present. And we know a Byzantine emperor went out of his way to dedicate a church to the guy. So even though we don't have any details about him, and I'm using details in very heavy quotes here, given that Michael the Archimandrite's narrative is almost certainly exaggerated what with the, you know, bringing children back to life and other stuff. Even though we don't have that until the 800s, we know that before that, people were really into him. One of the reasons for St. Nicholas's popularity was his status as the patron saint of sailors. As I mentioned last episode, there was that story about how he calmed a storm just through big saint energy, and that might have seemed like one of the less dramatic stories to you, but imagine if it's your job to sail the Aegean, the Ionian, the Mediterranean, and every voyage could be your last. A guy who could do that, a guy who was associated with good weather and safe travels, he's going to be the saint you venerate. And so St. Nicholas's popularity started showing up in harbors and ports, all over the Christian world, and his status as being a sailor saint, probably more so than a gift-giving saint, contributed to his popularity, at least initially. Saints have feast days, and for a lot of saints, a feast day meant acknowledging they existed, maybe eating a larger-than-normal meal, drinking a bit, and thinking, you know what, 
it's great that we have all these saints and all these feasts. But some saints had certain things associated with their feast days. St. Valentine's Day is associated with, well, Valentine stuff. St. Patrick's Day is associated with pretending you're Irish. And early on, St. Nicholas's feast day of December 6th was associated with giving, receiving, and exchanging gifts. That story about his generosity, where he gave the money secretly to the family so the daughters without dowries could wed, that sparked gift-giving as a thing people did on St. Nicholas's feast. Now, places all over the Christian world celebrated the feast of St. Nicholas, obviously in Turkey where he was from, in Greece, in Italy, in what would become France and Germany, and places either made a big deal out of it or not. It was pretty much universally acknowledged, but in some regions it was a party, and in some regions it was, hey cool, another feast day. And there is one place that took the feast of St. Nicholas and made it their thing. Like, really made it their thing. Where other regions might have given or exchanged small tokens as gifts, this was a region that made gift-giving a whole big celebration and made St. Nicholas their guy. That's the Netherlands. For whatever reason, in the Middle Ages, the Feast of St. Nicholas became one of the biggest celebrations on the Dutch calendar. It has never stopped being popular. If you go to the Netherlands today, in December, there's going to be St. Nicholas stuff. And it's been so popular that not even the Protestant Reformation could stop it. Multiple Protestant governments in the Netherlands, which have tried to stop the veneration of saints because they smack of popery, have not been able to quash this thing. That's how popular it is. And throughout the centuries in the Netherlands, gifts from neighbor to neighbor, from parents to children, that were given on the Feast of St. Nicholas got characterized as gifts from St. Nicholas, just like the gift of money that he gave to that family that needed to marry off their daughters. At the same time, personifying and performing as the Bishop of Mira became part of the festivities. Having a guy dressed up in bishop's vestments, with the hat, the mitre, and long curved cane, riding on a horse, became de rigueur in the Netherlands as part of the feast day. And by the way, a lot of people who were raised in a contemporary Christian tradition might think that that is kind of weird or blasphemous. I include myself in that. I'm no longer religious, but I am culturally Catholic. And the idea of dressing up as a saint, or God, or Jesus for that matter, um, honestly seems a little strange to me, because it seems arrogant for somebody to pretend that they could embody something divine. But in a lot of Christian places throughout Europe, uh, dressing up or performing as a saint was a pretty common thing to do. Before secular theater was even a thing, acting out the lives of the saints or performing plays that had some kind of religious theme or message, that was popular entertainment, especially on saintly feast days. So dressing up as Saint Nick became the big thing to do in the Netherlands on and before December 6th. This guy became known as Sinterklaas. And by the way, in the Netherlands, 
Sinterklaas has developed into his own kind of folkloric figure. Sinterklaas in the Netherlands has the look of a bishop with the vestments and a hat and a curved cane. He's also got other characteristics that have been added to him over the years. For instance, in the Netherlands, he doesn't show up via a flying sleigh. Instead, he shows up on a boat, maintaining some of his heritage as a patron saint of sailors. And a boat doesn't arrive from the North Pole. It arrives from Spain, for some reason. Also, Sinterklaas may or may not own a slave, and I'm not going to go into this here because, because this episode has way too much stuff in it, and this really should be its own thing. But Svartpiet is a whole mess of stuff that I am not going to go into here. And the short version of it is that he is a companion to Sinterklaas in the Dutch tradition of African ancestry, who's often portrayed by white actors in blackface. In older versions of the story, he is indeed Sinterklaas's slave, which is really uncomfortable. And it's a whole controversial thing in the Netherlands, especially given that country's history of colonialism and participation in the transatlantic slave trade. And also, for an American audience, knowing the, like, ugly history of blackface, Svartpiet is difficult to look at, but that's an episode from another time. We're talking about where Santa comes from. Sinterklaas is not Santa Claus. Rather, he's a folkloric figure that led into Santa Claus. We don't get Santa until Dutch settlers cross the Atlantic and establish a city they call New Amsterdam. A bit later on, New Amsterdam became a bit more British than it was Dutch. But even after Old New York became New Amsterdam, the town still had a fairly robust Dutch population, and Dutch cultural traditions endured there, like celebrating the Feast of St. Nicholas. And here in the New World, Sinterklaas kind of transforms into Santa Claus. It's hard to get a picture of this transformation. This is an episode where we have to see things very gradually shift into one another. It's difficult to talk about direct causality with this type of stuff. Instead, we have to look at the record and kind of make connections, but try not to make too many definitive connections where they're not there, if that makes sense. We have to be comfortable with things being gray, blurry, gradual, and ambiguous. But anyway, we have a pretty good picture of a figure that's half Sinterklaas and half Santa Claus from Washington Irving. Washington Irving, by the way, is one of the most transformative American writers that no one talks about. We have a whole bunch of ideas and misconceptions about early American history because of and from Washington Irving, and I really should do an episode about that sometime. But in his 1912 book, A Knickerbocker's History of New York, the author wrote about the still extant Dutch population and Dutch cultural traditions there. Irving describes St. Nicholas in this book as looking something like a Dutch sailor and also kind of like a Dutch ethnic stereotype. In this section, he describes a guy called Olaf having a dream sequence where he sees St. Nicholas flying around in not a sleigh, but a wagon. Irving writes, quote, And lo, 
the good St. Nicholas came riding over the tops of the trees, in that selfsame wagon, wherein he brings his yearly presents to children. And he descended hard by where the heroes of Communipaw, that's a region in New York, had made their late repast, and he lit his pipe by the fire, and sat himself down and smoked. And as he smoked, the smoke from his pipe ascended into the air, and spread like a cloud overhead. And Olaf bethought him, and he hastened and climbed up to the top of the tallest trees, and he saw that the smoke spread over the great extent of the country, and he considered it more attentively than he fancied, that the great volume of smoke assumed a variety of marvelous forms, where in dim obscurity he saw shadowed out palaces and domes and lofty spires, all of which lasted but a moment and then faded away, until the whole rolled off and nothing but the green woods were left. And when St. Nicholas had smoked his pipe, he twisted it in his hatband, and laying his finger beside his nose, gave the astonished Van Cortland, that is, Olaf, a very significant look, and then mounting his wagon, he returned over the treetops and disappeared. Unquote. Hey, that's pretty trippy. St. Nick basically sitting down, smoking a pipe, and conjuring up wide vistas in the smoke like he's... Gandalf and the Lord of the Rings who can make smoke rings that look like ships and that kind of thing. I kind of love it, honestly. But that's 1912. Washington Irving writing in and about New York and writing about St. Nicholas as this trippy Dutch wizard thing. Nine years later, though, we have Sinterklaas as Santa Claus and referred to as such. This is the first real textual reference we have, not to St. Nicholas and not to Sinterklaas, but to Santa Claus. It's also from New York, and it is called Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, and it was published in a book called The Children's Friend in 1821. In this poem, in this book, Santa Claus, much like St. Nicholas in Washington Irving's account, is specifically called out as being a giver of gifts to children. Here's the poem in its entirety. Old Santa Claus with much delight, his reindeer drives this frosty night, or chimney tops and tracks of snow, to bring his yearly gifts to you. The steady friend of virtuous youth, the friend of duty and of truth, each Christmas Eve he joys to come, where peace and love have made their home. Through many houses he has been, and various beds and stockings seen, some white as snow and neatly mended, others that seemed for pigs intended. To some I gave a pretty doll, to some a peg top or a ball. No crackers, cannons, squibs, or rockets to blow their eyes up or their pockets. Where'er I found good girls or boys that hated quarrels, strife, and noise, I left an apple or a tart or a wooden gun or painted cart. No drums to stun their mother's ear, nor swords to make their sisters fear but pretty books to store their mind with knowledge of each various kind. But where I found children naughty in manners crude and tempers haughty, thankless to parents, liars, swearers, boxers or cheats or base tale bearers, I left a long black birchen rod, such as the dread command of God directs a parent's hand to use when virtue's path his sons refuse. Unquote. There's a whole lot of weird stuff in there and a whole bunch of Santa. Also, the author does not make it clear that the point of view shifts from being about Santa to being spoken by Santa, but 
you were probably able to figure that out. I love it that Santa in this story does not give loud gifts to children because that is terrible for parents. And also, instead of giving bad children coal, leaves their parents gifts of stuff to beat them with. My God. But anyway, that poem, it's from 1821. Like Washington Irving's account, it's from the New York region, and it also featured illustrations of Santa not in a flying wagon, but in a flying sleigh. Washington Irving didn't give any indication of what was pulling St. Nicholas's wagon, probably horses, but in this version, there are reindeer, and he is arriving on Christmas Eve, not the Feast of St. Nicholas. So something's happened here. In New York, Sinterklaas has become Santa Claus, and the Feast of St. Nicholas has moved over and merged with Christmas as a gift-bestowing holiday, probably because they were both in December, and Christmas is a big popular thing. This poem, Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, which has lots of our first recorded instances of Santa stuff, is from two years before A Visit from St. Nicholas, also known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. Now, we will get to A Visit from St. Nicholas, but before we do, we need to go to Britain. In the illustrations for Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, he doesn't look like a bishop. Nor does he look like a Dutch sailor, the way Washington Irving described him. Instead, he's got a beard, he's wearing furs, and he is portrayed as being decked out in either red or green. There's no vestments, there's no bishop's hat, there's no crooked cane, and there's no horse like the one that he rides in the Netherlands. Sinterklaas is not the only folkloric figure that fed into Santa Claus. We also have to talk about Father Christmas. Like Sinterklaas, Father Christmas is not exactly Santa. Or at least he wasn't originally. He's a British personification of wintertime festivities, which go back generations in Britain and other parts of Europe. As having a big feast day during the darkest time of year is a tradition that predates Christmas. Christmas and holidays like it are older than Christianity. Father Christmas is a personification of the holiday and the time of season, and he's often portrayed as a fur-clad older man. And this personification of Christmas shows up all the way back to the 1600s. So here's one early portrayal of what Christmas as a person looked like. This is from a play called The Spring's Glory by English playwright Thomas Nabbs. And in this early 1600s play, Christmas is portrayed as, quote, an old reverend gentleman in a furred gown and cap, etc. Yes, Christmas is a character in this play. And in case you're wondering why Christmas is a character, well, the play also features other anthropomorphized seasonal entities. There's also Venus, Cupid, Ceres, and Bacchus, their characters. So are Shrovetide, Lent, and Spring. So Christmas as a person in this play kind of makes sense. And this is just one example. There are other works of English drama where Christmas shows up as a character, and he tends to look like this. Older guy, furry gown, wintertime regalia. But you might also recognize Father Christmas from another later work of English literature, from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. When one of the spirits shows up in Scrooge's bedroom, 
surrounded by a feast, surrounded by plenty. Dickens writes, quote, I am the ghost of Christmas present, said the spirit. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe, or mantle, bordered with white fur. The garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capricious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air." Unquote. The Ghost of Christmas Present, in Dickens's telling, is a guy with a beard and long hair, wearing a holly crown, and kind of just letting it all hang out, being free, being easy, and also surrounded by food. He sounds like a great time. The Ghost of Christmas Present, in Dickens's telling, sounds like getting drunk and eating pie in your bathrobe, which I'm sure plenty of people do on Christmas. But unlike Santa Claus, who is often more associated with children and giving presents, Father Christmas was originally associated with feasting and revelry, with cracking out the food and booze and having a great time. We don't quite know where Father Christmas comes from. There's popular belief that he might be based on Odin, and I really want to believe that's true. I really want to believe that ideas and stories about Thor's dad led into Father Christmas, which led into Santa Claus, but unfortunately there's no way to actually substantiate that. There's nothing that we have connecting Odin to Father Christmas to Santa. But what we do know is that in the same way that the Dutch brought Sinterklaas to New York, the British brought Father Christmas to the same region. And in the New World, these two figures, these two older gentlemen who presided over wintertime festivals, started to overlap, started to merge, and started to become neither Father Christmas nor Sinterklaas, and at the same time, both Father Christmas and Sinterklaas, and combined to become Santa Claus. And it was in New York in 1823 when this all came together, and Santa, as we know him, stepped onto the scene. It was in a publication called The Sentinel, out of a town called Troy, New York, and the poem was called A Visit from St. Nicholas, though we now call it Twas the Night Before Christmas. About a decade after Washington Irving wrote of St. Nicholas as a Dutch sailor in a flying wagon, two years after Old Santa Claus with much delight was delivering presents and also rods for parents to beat their children with, we had the following. Quote, he was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and his beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke had encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly, that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know that I had nothing to dread. 
He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, and turned with a jerk. And laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod up the chimney, he rose. Unquote. By the way, did you catch that in the last few lines? The ending of A Visit from St. Nicholas has some similar ideas from Washington Irving's Knickerbocker's History of New York. In both instances, Santa is smoking and making the smoke from his pipe look like wizard stuff. In Washington Irving's, it's more phantasmagorical. He's creating whole cityscapes, presumably with Christmas magic. And in this one, the smoke around his head looks like a wreath. Or if you want to really reach for saint imagery, a halo. Also in both, St. Nicholas doesn't say anything, gives a knowing look to an onlooker, puts his finger next to his nose, and vanishes. This could be intentional, an instance of one writer freely borrowing from another, or making a deliberate reference that they knew would resonate with their audience. The author of A Visit from St. Nicholas was, perhaps, counting on their readers to recognize a bit of a tip of the hat to Washington Irving's Knickerbocker's History of New York. Also, like a lot of other Santa stuff, we're not exactly sure who wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas. Clement Clark Moore is often listed as the poet, and Moore was a professor of biblical studies in New York who was indeed a poet, but he only claimed authorship about a decade after the anonymous poem was published. The verse might have been written by another New York poet named Henry Livingston Jr., who died in 1828. Livingston's other existing verses are similar to what we see in A Visit from St. Nicholas, and his family and various scholars think that it's more likely he was the author than Moore was. We can't say for sure. Like many other aspects of the Santa Claus story, we just don't know, and we have to be comfortable with ambiguity. Here's something we do know, though. We do know that Santa does not wear red and white because Coca-Cola. That's a myth. By the way, if you're listening outside of the United States, there is this conventional wisdom in America that the only reason Santa wears red and white is because, starting in the 1930s, Coca-Cola ran ads with him wearing Coca-Cola colors. Now, it is true that starting in 1931, Coca-Cola, which has red and white company colors, did indeed run ads starring Santa, and Santa was indeed wearing red and white in those advertisements for America's favorite sugary beverage. However, we have plenty of images of red and white Santas that predate that original 1931 Coca-Cola advertisement. Well-known illustrators like Norman Rockwell and N.C. Wyeth were portraying Santa Claus in a red and white suit in popular publications like the Saturday Evening Post back in the 1920s. And we have red and white Santas that go all the way back to the 1800s. So Coke didn't invent that look. It really was something that emerged organically over time as different artists and different illustrators iterated over the figure of Santa Claus. The red and white look is just as authentic, if you want to use that word, as other stuff about Santa, like the beard, the stockings, the flying reindeer, and being a living saint. That poem that I mentioned earlier, Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, the illustrations for that poem did have a red suit Santa, though not exclusively. Some of the illustrations in that book also dressed him in green, where he looked more like earlier images of Father Christmas. So, red suit Santa, 
not a soft drink advertising thing. The red suit belongs to him. And by the time we get to the middle 1800s, we have Santa Claus. The figures of Sinterklaas, of Father Christmas, and St. Nicholas have all formed into something that, in a lot of ways, is uniquely American, and is a result of Dutch and British immigrants sharing their cultural traditions, cultural traditions that date back to the Mediterranean and the early church in the New World. Santa Claus is the example of American cultural syncretism and cultural exchange. I started this podcast by asking, where does Santa Claus come from? And that's a big question and hard to answer, given that so much stuff is unknown, and it's hard to establish causality between a lot of these related things. But here's a bigger and more important question. Why are figures like Santa Claus, like St. Nicholas, like Sinterklaas, and Father Christmas so compelling to us? I'm not a folklorist or an anthropologist, so I cannot give a definitive answer. We need someone to be the life of the party, to bring the celebration, to put seasonal revelry in motion. Parties and feasts need hosts, instigators, planners, and celebrants. However, humans want to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. We want to feel like we're all in something together. We crave symbols and names for our collective feeling. Santa and figures like him give that collective feeling a face and a name. And Santa is the kind of ultimate party planner, ultimate celebrant, ultimate bringer of revelry around Christmas time. What does that mean? Well, that means that you can be visited by Santa. Santa is a name for the great big collective feeling of Christmas that shows up around this time of year. So when you're at a holiday party that's hosted by your friend, Santa is with you. When you get a gift from somebody that you didn't expect, it's a little gift from Santa right there. When you're walking through the store and they play a Christmas song you actually like, that's a little bit of Santa energy for you. But Santa also means that we can participate in Santa-ness, if that makes sense. Again, Santa brings a celebration. And when we are the ones planning the party or baking the gingerbread or making the pie or giving the gifts, that means that we get to be Santa. So if you're the one who shows up with tasty snacks for the office, you get to participate in Santa-ness. You get to be a part of that thing bigger than yourself. If you walk around in public with an absurdly festive Christmas sweater, well, once again, you are participating in Santa-ness. You are bringing the festivities to others. And of course, when you give a gift to a friend, a loved one, a child, a partner, you get to partake of a bit of what makes Santa so special. When you give gifts to other people, suddenly you get to feel just a little like you are part of a grand gift-giving tradition. You get to feel just a little like you are part of a tradition of generosity that goes all the way back to a Turkish bishop giving his own money to a needy family. And that's a powerful feeling. And really, more than anything else, more than any one text, any one poem, more than Washington Irving, Clement Clark Moore, or even the actual real historical figure of St. Nicholas, that is where Santa comes from. He comes from all of us. You, me, everyone. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon. Bye. 
Christmas we get we deserve 